Well, welcome everybody to this week's edition of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan and joining me is Brad Hallier. And Brad, it's an interesting time of year. It's still feeling quite a quite a little bit like winter and we got a ton of baseball we can talk about but holy cow it was uh you know last week i was at a high school game on tuesday night in canton galva and it was blowing gusting into the 60s blowing the entire infield into our face with 87 degrees and by the time i left that night it had turned around was blowing that hard out of the north temperature had dropped 20 degrees getting ready to rain and we had snow on the ground the next morning so <laughs> i don't know what sport we should start off talking about yeah i was at uh, may south uh, roughing a soccer game last tuesday and it was it was a pretty warm night and of course it was just windy as heck and we we tried to wear the the, the communication system that referees wear and the hard thing was every time, Scott, I turned to run to the south, I just got hit right in the face with a blast of 35-mile-per-hour wind. And even if I, even though I had the, the headset, like, taped to my cheek, it still <laughs> flew off. It, it lasted, like, 12 minutes. I finally took it off, and I, I said into the mic, guys, I can't do it. It's getting ready to fall off. I just can't do it. So, but, yeah, then I just remember the next morning uh, going, to, going to work at Hutch Juco and looking out my window about 8.15. I was like, that's snow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. just wild stuff man it, it was one of the most miserable games i've set at just because of, and the fans were the same way you just see the gust you just turn your head for a little bit and and just pl- plug on through it and we, we we got through it but boy i'm ready for some uh some real baseball weather well let's talk about of course the kansas city royals underway and they uh, this is a monday evening that we're recording, they have uh, actually a couple of days off, which is interesting. They had Sunday and Monday off. They are three and five. Uh, they broke up their losing streak by beating the Tigers uh, three to one. So after starting two and zero, oh, losing five in a row, they beat the Tigers. Uh, just your first general impression of what you've seen from the Royals, such a small sample size of eight games. Well, I I think we know that this team wasn't going to contend this year. And I think what we're going to see with this team, Scott, is we're going to see some moments of just sheer brilliance from a lot of different players. We're, we're, it's going to be fun at times, but it's also going to be maddening at times. I think we could see the Royals have a stretch of, you know, 20 games where they go 16 and four. And then we could also see a stretch of 20 games where they go three and 17. And it's just going to be maddening like that this year. I don't think they're going to be a 500 team. I think 75 wins is probably this team's peak. And I think if they get in the 70 to 75 win range, I don't think anybody would be surprised. But just based on the youth, uh, some of this, uh, some of their, their, the players that they have this year, I just think we're going to see a, just kind of a wild season with some great stretches offset by some really poor stretches. Yeah, I know the, the opener, of course, a lot of people are talking about the, uh... Uh, there was actually Royals royalty, pardon the pun there, on Ann George Brett was there. Uh, the mayor of Kansas City was there. The, the KU National Championship team uh, all traveled from Lawrence for the opener. And just to see, I can, can only imagine the pressure, to, just to see Bobby Witt Jr. play. And lo and behold, he's able to deliver that night in the eighth inning uh, a two-run double to uh, – be the game winner for the Royals that night. So, so it got off to a great start, at least for the Royals. That, that was nice to see, at least, you know, 
in that game that he came through with all the pressure and all the eyes on him. Yeah, it was. Uh, he he's someone who's grown up in the spotlight. You know, his pops was a big league player and and, and a very good big league player. He didn't have just a cup of coffee. You know, Mike would enjoy a nice uh, career in the majors, and so he's kind of like Patrick Mahomes. He's used to the spotlight. He's got the great, you know, person to 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 look up to and to to try to emulate in the big leagues with his dad. And he's going to be something special. I just hope we don't put too much pressure on him right now and expect him to be George Brett 1980 when he's probably going to be more close to Alex Gordon's rookie year than George Brett in you know his MVP year. Yeah, uh, I was just looking here, searching around for some stats. He's five for 32 at the plate. So I think you're kind of talking about the Gordon kind of start. And he is off to the very slow start at the plate. Yeah, and, and he, he's going to have to adjust to big league pitching. I mean, that's it sounds like a cliche, Scott, but the, the difference between, you know, double-A pitching and major league pitching is night and day. It's it's kind of like going from high school to college almost. I mean, are you going to see some good pitchers in, in high school? Sure, you're going to see some good pitchers in high school, but you're not seeing the, the, the best of the best. Like when you go from high school to college, now you're seeing the guys that are truly good. Well, now Bobby Witt's gone from, you know, playing against up-and-coming prospects and maybe guys rehabbing and maybe guys that are kind of hanging on by a thread to playing the absolute best in the world. So it's going to be an adjustment period for him, you know, getting used to big league pitching. But, again, I don't have any doubt that he's going to be able to make that adjustment. I think he, I think he'll be just fine. Um, Royals really struggling. Um, some of the big names on the team at the plate, uh, Whit Merrifield, 5 for 33, Salvi, uh, 6 for 32. Um what, what do you attribute that to? I mean, we know the resume of these two guys. They're going to break out of it. They're not going to go on that uh, that kind of a clip all year long. What, what do you, Can you attribute really any one or two things to the slow start at the plate for some of the, some of the better players on this Royals team? Well, I would imagine this is not the same throughout Major League Baseball where maybe offensive numbers are down a little bit, but I would be interested to see what those numbers are across Major League Baseball. You know, is there any kind of effect from – the late start and, and the uh, abbreviated and I don't know if it was abbreviated per se, but maybe the, the shortened spring training or the, the quick spring training that they had, you know, where one day they don't know if they're going to play a season to the next. Okay. Go to spring training guys. Let's, let's get ready for the season. So I don't know if that's got anything to do with it or not, but I would be interested to see some of the numbers across the board to see if maybe other teams are struggling offensively. Well, you would think that would be something that baseball would certainly um, not want. I mean, I think they're always looking to have um, eye-popping numbers. And I think most – if you talk to any executive in any of the major sports in this country, what they would want, they would want more offense. I Just because it's more appealing um, to fans, to, to upper-level execs, you want to see those numbers being put out there. So I, I'm certainly thinking that the major league, if, if that is the trend, they're going to look at ways to reverse that trend for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested to see what they have in mind. But, uh, I, you know, ultimately you got, you know, uh, a guy who's led the league in hits before in Whit Merrifield. you got a future Hall of Famer in Salvador Perez. You know, 
the, the thing is, Scott, and you know as well as I do, that in a 162-game season, you're, you're going to have a lot of peaks and valleys. Well, right now, collectively, the team is in a valley offensively right now. And the, if they if they start out 5-3 and three instead of 3-5 and five and they're scoring 7-8 runs a game, we'd be thinking, oh, my gosh, this team's got some serious potential right now. Uh, you know, this could be one of the best offensive teams we've seen in years. <laughs> and But if they do that in games – you know, 80 to 88, we're not, we're not saying that anymore because it's a different time of the season. So it's just a small sample size is all we have to go by right now. Uh, they'll snap out of it. I'm not really too overly worried about it. No, I think the, it, it's, it'll be interesting to see um, where they go from here. You always fear one of those early, you know, eight, 10 game losing streaks that kind of bury you where you always feel like you're playing um, catch up the whole season. But I, I think the Royals will be, be fine. And again, that, that, you know, you stated your expectations. My expectations is, you know, if, if they get, like you said, 70, 75 wins, I think it's a, it's a step in the right direction for, for the Kansas city Royals. Um, also in uh, major league baseball, Brad, did you see this? And I think it was a double a game the other day. I, I'm going to struggle to find the article, but there was an inning in which a pitcher, struck out the side on eight pitches huh interesting i know that there's there's weird things like that that can happen uh in baseball like i actually read uh, an article once that said it's actually possible for a uh, a a pitcher to throw a complete game on just 27 uh on just uh, nine pitches actually legal pitches i mean it's never going to happen but it is in the realm of possibility so i'd be curious how this happened well, how it happened is, as you know, the minor leagues are experimenting with some um, technology and rules to see how they work if they want to be brought up to the big leagues. Well, they were using a pitch clock. Oh, okay. Yep. There, Apparently, there you go. the rule works is the batter, if he is not in the box ready to hit, when the pitch clock hits nine seconds, it becomes an automatic strike. So the pitcher during this inning, he threw eight strikes and got his ninth. Well, I don't know. It was actually, I think it was maybe the ninth and the end of the inning because the batter was not back in the box. So that, so the automatic strike struck him out for strike three. And that's how he did it with just eight pitches. Well, that's kind of like the NBC with the pitch clock and all that. And, uh, you know, I'd be in favor of the pitch clock, Scott. Uh, I'm, I just think that sometimes baseball games last too long. I love going to the summer games like you with the Pipeliners and me with the Monarchs and going down to the NBC. And you know, those games don't take no three and a half hours to play. Heck, you can you can go to a, a, a Hutchinson Monarchs game that starts at 7 o'clock and you can be home by 9.30. And uh, I, I think speed of play is something, uh, of all the things that baseball needs to do, I think, to try to attract younger fans, speed of play has got to be at the top of the list. I'm, I'm all in favor of the pitch clock and – I am certainly in favor of the automated strike zone. Um, I, you already see the technology. I think it's Fox games. Sometimes they will put up that little box on the screen that shows you where the pitches hit and what is supposed to be the strike zone. Um, I get, uh, I think I get frustrated even at, when I watch high school and college baseball and call it that, you know, you switch home plate umpires between games for double headers. And then all of a sudden, the, the players had adjusted that that belt high pitch, that was a ball all game one. Now, all of a sudden, it's a strike when game two starts. Um, 
I, I'm certainly in favor. The technology is there. I, I, I guess I don't see why there is such resistance to that, but th- th- there sure seems to be. Well, I think some of it is because, you know, traditionalists and, you know, you take, the, I think that everyone kind of likes the human elements involved with uh, umpires and baseball is kind of a sport where, I mean, a lot of the play, a lot of the calls are black and white, in my opinion, you know, safer out. Well, that's pretty obvious ball or strike. Well, that's black and white. Is it in the zone or is it not in the zone? So I think some people are kind of reluctant to, uh, to, to take some of the human elements away. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm completely on board yet with an autom- with automated strike zone, but I'm not. I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea to look at. I I mean they're always talking about how can we how can we get the calls right? How can we um, how can we kind of eliminate the human error? If you can get the call right, you have the technology to do it. I I boy I've always been in favor of that. I and I mean. Not just to have a little resistance, but there, I mean, there is some serious resistance out there. And I don't know, I, I, I guess the way you're talking, I'm certainly more sold on it. I think it could be done and done right. And certainly the pitch clock, I have I have no issue with that. No, I, I think that's one of the great things about the NBC World Series is that pitch clock. And it's something that, you know, was it? I think it's 90 seconds in between the third out of the inning and the first pitch of the next inning and what 20 seconds in between pitches and i think that's great and you know i hate for them to do some you know something even more extreme than that i think that would solve a lot of pace of play rules i mean it's ridiculous when you got the yankees and the red Sox playing four hour regular season nobody wants to sit through four hours of that scott not even yankee fans and red Sox fans want to sit through that so i mean if you can't get a regular nine inning game you know and i'm not talking about a 17 to 15 game that might happen every now and then if you can't get a basic major league baseball game done in three hours or less then that's that's just uh, then, then you're doing something wrong yeah uh, i'm in full agreement three three hours should be the your outside unless you say you get extraordinary circumstances of a slug fest on a day everybody's hitting or or of course weather i mean you can't um you can't dance around that. If you have to stop the game, you have to stop the game. But um, yeah, three hours and, and, and that should be it. So um, some major league baseball talk here. Let's uh, let's keep it on the baseball subject. We'll, 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 we'll dance back to college here in a minute. Uh, Keisha finally did last week come out uh, with their regional assignments for high school baseball. Anything when you first saw him jump off the page? Well, 4A baseball, Scott, on the west side is looking tough, man. I mean, Pratt's undefeated, Circle's undefeated, McPherson's 8-1. and one. You got Clay Center is usually good. Lions-Sterling is now 4A due to their co-op. Uh, you know, Mulvane-Augusta, Bueller are all really, really good. I mean, Bueller played collegiate tonight uh, on Monday and lost both games, so they're 6-4 and four now with undefeated Circle coming up. So, I uh, – it could be very much like last year where I think you could see somebody who's maybe uh, seated sixth, seventh or eighth uh, come through and, and win a regional championship. And it really wouldn't be much of an upset because there's just a lot of good teams in 4A West, Scott. Yeah, 4A looking really tough. Of course, Aaron West always covers all of our our Bueller games for us. And they, like you said, they also recently matched up with McPherson. So, <laughs> gee, where have we heard this before? Bueller's <laughs> And in 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 high school sports, playing a tough schedule because I think we talked about it about every week um, in their football and their basketball season. They just 
they just play a tough schedule, and it's no different with their baseball schedule. Well, a lot of it's due to the fact that their conference is just really good, ABCTL Division Three. but some of it is also because they play some of those Division Four teams, like Collegiate, that's really, really good in a lot of sports, and Dale Division Four, really good at a lot of sports, so... Uh, maybe they need to go punch above their weights in Division Two and, and ease up on the schedule. But even then, there's some good teams, very good teams in Division uh, Two as well. So there's really nowhere to run, nowhere to hide with the ABCTL schedule. Well, in Class 3A, they they packed most of our area teams in the Halstead Regional, as I have the, the standings up. Uh, Heston right now, percentage-wise, they had, just haven't gotten in as many games um, setting the top at five and one. I saw them last week um, against Nickerson win a couple of a six inning and a five inning game over the winless Nickerson Panthers, who are also um, in this regional. Heston um, went to state for the first time in program history last year. Uh, very solid. I have not, I will see Haven tomorrow night. They're going to be playing at Nickerson. Haven eight and two. Off to a great start. Southeast is slain in there at nine and three. I've seen Hillsborough and Halstead both play. Hillsborough seven and three. Halstead's four and two. Just again, Halstead hasn't got in a ton of games. I guess the teams that I have seen so far, Brad, and that's what is going to make this regional so much fun. I've seen good teams. I have not seen a great team. Well, in Council Grove, if I'm not mistaken, Scott's usually a pretty good team, and. Uh, they're they're four and six right now. I think uh, I saw them in regionals last year. And they're actually the bottom seed in their region, and they actually gave Heston a pretty good game in the first round. Uh, I think it went into the sixth inning like three to one or something like that. Heston ended up winning pretty comfortably, but um, it was a pretty competitive game there for a while. And so uh, with them having a lot of their players back, you know, Council Grove is a team I want to dismiss either. So yeah, there's going to be some good teams. Uh, Southeast of Saline always seems like that they're at stake quite a bit. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, quite a dogfight in that region. I think you're going to see, you know, probably five, maybe even six teams with a realistic chance of winning it. Yeah, I certainly think the top four, top five um, are going to have a chance in that. Again, it's kind of a shame that all of our area teams get packed in, but I, th- I think it happens in, in a lot of sports and no different in baseball. Uh for 2-1A, which we cover a lot of, um, kind of split up a little bit. There's the Brookville, El Saline Regional, which has Little River and uh, Canton Galva. Uh, have seen Canton Galva uh, play Marion and uh, Little River. I will see a little bit later in the season. Right now, Little River on top of the region at 7-1. and one. Canton Galva really struggling. They're 1-7. And, and then the other regional... Let me get down to it. I believe it is at Sedgwick. Um, we'll see Sedgwick this week play at Canton Galva. Sedgwick's 11 and 1. Of course, they're defending 2-1A state baseball champions. Uh, Marion, as they always are, um, very well coached with Roger Schroeder. They're sitting at 5 and 3. Mound Ridge, 3 and 7. A really, really young Inman team graduated a ton off of that. Um, regional finals team last year they're three and eight two uh, a boy when I when I look um, at these records um, I don't know Sedgwick seems like a good bet to get back to state oh they certainly seem loaded again I mean they, they and, and Sedgwick boy they're just going through a great stretch in boys athletics right now and uh, you know with them winning a state baseball last year I don't I don't think there's any reason to think that they couldn't 
repeat again this year. I'm just glad, though, to see Little River kind of split away from the pack a little bit. They were in that really tough regional last year, so they're going up north this year, so that's kind of good for them. And, and you know, I love to see them make state and Cedric make state. I think there, there's going to be some good teams from our area uh, making it to the 2-1A state tournament in uh, Great Bend. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get to be in Great Bend here in um, just over two weeks for the uh, KCAC baseball tournament. Uh, it's been a l- little uh, remodeling over there, I guess, of the surfaces. All uh, all three softball and the main baseball and the practice baseball all now all infield, all turf. Um, they did that, of course, to keep the events they have and to uh, maybe attract some additional summer tournaments uh, to prevent the rainouts and <laughs> heaven knows anybody that has been involved with the KCAC baseball tournament knows we have battled rain a lot over there so it's great to see them make that next step over there and, and get the turf in oh great facility even without the turf but now that they've had it um it's just kind of a necessary evil I mean I'm kind of a traditionalist uh, where I like seeing the grass infield and the dirt infield but you know what Scott when you have limited time to get these tournaments in uh bottom line is uh if you have turf, you're going to get these events. And if you don't have turf, and that's a big reason Salina's Dean Evans Stadium went turf because of the fiasco a couple of years ago with state baseball. So it's, uh, but it, it's wonderful. Like the Genesis Sports Complex in Goddard, um, it's just it, 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 it's it's a, it's a necessary thing uh, at this point. But it, it, they definitely look great, and uh, it's a nice facility up in Great Bend. It's it's going to look great. Well, how much I. I... I haven't heard this from anybody in an official capacity, but there's been a lot of rumblings that here in the very near future that even, I don't know if it would apply to regionals, but it may. Uh, If you do not have at least turf on your infield, certainly you would not get a state event and potentially maybe not even be able in a few years to host a regional. Have you heard anything about that if you don't have turf? Well, I would wager that for baseball and softball anyway, that if you want to host regionals, you know, if you have turf, you're obviously going to be ahead of the game. But if you don't, you better have a viable option ready at the drop of a hat. And that, that you know, that might mean for like Heston High School, uh, do they, you know, does Heston College have turf or do they have to go to, you know, Genesis or something like that? And uh, so th- there's going to be all kinds of, I think that's that's going to be almost a necessity, essentially telling these facilities you can host, but you better have a, a viable backup ready just in case. Yeah, I mean, we the perfect we saw it last year with regionals. I believe the one I was supposed to be covering was the uh, I think Inman was hosting it initially and we had to go over and we played at uh, Grant Sports Complex in McPherson because of rain. They, they had to get these games in and get your state qualifiers. So um, unfortunate as it is, I, I, boy, I, I think it's, I think it's going to happen because we're going to just continue to have trouble getting these tournaments in if they don't do that. Right. Right. And, you know, worst case scenario, if you know, if you, and I think that's why oftentimes Scott, we're seeing these regional tournaments being played as early as possible, which on one hand, I don't like, because if you, if you wrap up your regional tournament on Tuesday, you're not playing again for some, what, eight or nine days. But at the same time, you almost have to do it because if you do have a Monday or Tuesday with rain and it's a lot of rain, you may not be getting your regional tournament done until Thursday or Friday then. And if you start the regionals instead on Thursday or have the championship on Thursday, same thing happens rain. 
well, you may not be able to get that done until Sunday or Monday. So I get the early starts for the regionals, but that's kind of, yeah, it, that, that's got to be tough on those kids, you know, that win regionals on Tuesday. And now you got a full week before you even get to uh, travel to the state tournament. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's almost here. And I think it's going to be here officially pretty, pretty soon that uh, turf is going to be uh, the way to go. Little college baseball as we we move around. Uh, I had the Sterling College series, the doubleheader this last weekend against Oklahoma Westland. Uh, the three game set started on Friday. Um, Warriors tied the game in the eighth, coming from five two down. They got it to five to five. Ended up losing six five in ten eight ten innings. They turned around in Saturday and won the first game, the nine inning game, twelve to eight. Um, every time Oklahoma Westland got within one twice, Sterling would stretch the lead back out, got a nice win. Boy, Brad, and then that third game, <laughs> just inexplicable. 24 nothing loss in seven innings. The first inning, Brad, the first 11 batters reached base and scored. And it, it, was, it was done at that point. They got – Oklahoma Wesson got seven more in the second, six more in the third before they started um, pinch hitting at almost every spot in the lineup. Um, it was just, I don't know, maybe it's a kind of a microcosm, but to play so well in those first two games and then just to fall off the cliff in that last game was just, it, it was hard, hard to see after they played so well those first two games. Yeah, it's kind of been a microcosm in some ways these last couple seasons for Sterling College baseball. Just some some great moments, uh, some 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 close moments, and then just some what the heck just happened moments. So uh, those first two games, I mean, you look at those scores, you look at the box scores, you're thinking this team might be ready to turn the corner, and then boom, twenty four to nothing. So, but you know what? That but as Darren McHugh always says, Scott, that's baseball. Yeah, and I know mathematically it's probably not there yet. Um, they're six and twenty in the conference, and let me see, they have one, four, just seven conference games left. I mean, mathematically, I'll pull the standings up here. I don't think they're out of it for all intents and purposes. Um, they're, they're out of contention for, uh, yeah, th- right now, thirteen wins is what sixth place would be in the conference. So they would have to, they'd have to win out and hope Oklahoma Western or Kansas Westland lost out to mathematically have a chance. So I guess it's still there right now, but um, again, it looks like the Warriors are going to be on the outside looking in for the postseason tournament. Yeah. It's, uh, and you know, you know, as well as I do, Scott, you know, probably better than anybody, just how tough the conference is, especially at the top. I mean, wins are hard to come by when you're among the top six, seven teams. And, if you don't go out and win some series, you're not going to make the postseason, and they just haven't won series uh, this year. Yeah, and they're they're going back this year to in the tournament. Um, as we get closer, we'll talk more about the postseason KCAC tournament, which is going to be fantastic over in Great Bend. They're going to a traditional six-team double elimination bracket with the top two seeds getting buys. The past years, Brad, I, I can't even really explain – the 16 bracket that they used because there was three different outcomes, the way the bracket could play out as far as how many games you could have in that bracket. It was, it was the most bizarre bracket I'd ever seen where if you were at the, 
I think if you were in that, was it the three, four matchup? I think um, if you lost, you went on and played the one seed if they had won in your second game. Uh, and <laughs> it was, it was just bizarre. People ask me, well, who, who's going to play when I said, I don't know. I just have to wait until after every game and then see where the bracket goes. It was weird. So I'm, I'm really glad they're back to the traditional bracket this year. It was, it was bizarre <laughs> the way it worked. Yeah. It sounds like the old Missouri Valley conference tournament. They had a similar kind of bracket when Wichita state was in the conference of six teams. And yeah, it's something similar to that. And also the Juco world series has the uh, 10 team double elimination tournament. Now it's not quite that complicated, but there is a situation that exists, Scott, that's kind of funny where you can actually have three teams in the national championship game. Oh, really? Yeah. I know that the <laughs> NAI world series college world series uses a 10 team double elimination bracket. So, yeah, so what happens is if they get to the championship game and there's still three teams remaining, what they do is the team that has played the most games, uh, they, they essentially then kind of redraw things up and kind of have a mini single elimination tournament. And the team that plays the most games gets a bye to the championship. And if there's if they've all played some number of games and they do some other kind of tiebreakers. But, yeah, it's just uh, sometimes I th- while 10 team double elimination, you, you, can't, you might have to run it in something like that. I think for a six team, you don't have to make it that complicated. I yeah, it was it was beyond complicated. I never did actually quite figure it out. <laughs> it did. It just had when you got to a certain spot in the tournament. If you have this many teams remaining, you use this bracket. If you had this many teams remaining, you use this bracket, and then that could change one more time after that first decision. It was just, it was bizarre. So at least my head isn't going to be spinning for most <laughs> of the tournament over there this year. But that'll be uh, a topic we'll, we'll we'll get to when we get closer. That's the uh, first week of May. I think it's the fourth through the seventh for the KCAC baseball and softball championships. Speaking of softball, I'm sure you can get your two cents in here, Brad. Uh, I don't know that they're really flying under the radar anymore, but the Hutchinson Blue Dragons softball team having a fantastic season. Uh, just pulling up their record and stats right now. 30-6 and six overall, 21-3 uh, and three in the conference, and a whopping 19-1 and one on their home field. The Blue Dragons are, boy, they have put together a really nice team. Have you been able to get out and watch them this year? You know, I have not, Scott, but I obviously I follow follow them closely to see, you know, for story ideas for my students and whatnot. And they, they broke into the rankings at number 20. They've been ranked a couple times this year. And I think that, I don't know, that, that's not good enough, I think. Butler has two losses this year, Scott. Who are those two losses to? Hutch. And one of those games that Hutch lost to Butler was by one run. They also lost to a top 10 team in Grayson County or Grayson uh, College out of Texas. They lost to another top 10 Division II team in Murray State. So really, kind of the only non-head-scratching win or uh, losses you could say they had were to Northern Oklahoma, and then also to Colby, who's actually a decent team. So why they're ranked 20 is kind of beyond me. They should probably be a five or six spots higher, but they have definitely shown that they are a threat to win the regional championship this year. I mean, Butler has lost, if I'm not mistaken, Scott, something like five conference games in the last seven years, five in seven years. And three of them have been to Hutch and two of those have been this year. Bring us up to date on the standings right now. Where does Hutch sit? 
let me bring that up here quick, like Scott. They um, so Butler because they haven't lost anybody else besides Hutch. They they are sitting pretty good at first place, and Hutch's loss to Colby has moved them a game or a game in the loss uh, column back. But here, here's what you got at the top of the standings, Scott. You got Butler at twenty and two. You got Hutch at twenty one and three. Third place Barton fifteen and eleven. Wow. <laughs> so Butler and Hutch have by far separated themselves as the top teams in the conference and definitely on crash course meeting the championship out in Dodge city. Now there are some good teams out there. Barton is still a good team. Colby's beaten Hutch obviously. And Seward's a pretty good team. It's a pretty good team too. So I think, uh, but if, if it's not Butler and Hutch meeting first in the winner's bracket final, and then in the uh, championship game, I think it would be kind of a surprise. I just wanted to bring them up. I see them popping up on some of my Facebook stuff. Some of the people I'm friends with and, uh, they keep, it started coming up pretty early and often. They got some really nice early wins and then just kept winning, working their way into the rankings. And again, uh, I think a really nice chance to advance on past the uh, Kansas Jayhawk tournament. So we'll we'll keep tabs on them when they when they get going into their postseason. I uh, wanted to go back into the high school ranks, Brad, into some of the other sports because we've had some um, announcements from Keisha, I think, um, that we were happy with. It's been a long time coming and then another step forward. Um, let's first talk about the lower classes of football, which we'd be referring basically to 3-2 and 1A. Now, we'll have to see um, – I didn't get into the article long enough to see how it affected eight man and now six man. But now we are told that the lower classes, much like four, five and six, a are going to be seeded for postseason play. So how does this change the traditional by districts and all of that, that we are accustomed to and three, two and one a, well, I haven't seen everything official like a, an, an actual breakdown. But what it looked like is going to happen, Scott, is that 3A is going to go with quads. So you're essentially going to divide the state into four quadrants, northeast, southeast, northwest, southwest. And then you're going to make your – and so – oh, gosh, Scott, refresh my memory here. Is that 48 teams in 3A football? Does that sound right? Oh, that, that does sound right. Yeah, so 48 teams. And then you're going to divide those into 12-team – essentially 12 team districts. Now, obviously you're not going to play everybody in your district, just like in five, a and six, a and four, you don't play everybody in East and West, but what you're going to be able to do then is then you're going to be able to seed the teams and you're going to take the top eight from each quad to, to uh, fill out. Then that would be what a 32 team tournament. And then the bottom teams can play like their, 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 the traditional playout game or whatever it is you want to call it. So they'll still have, you know, the eight game regular season, and then they're going to have everyone will get, get a guaranteed ninth game either in the first round of the playoffs or in the uh, pl- uh, the playout game. And and it'll just go. I, I, I would assume then that they will see that some uh, somewhat like the first place team in the um, northwest district will play the eighth place team from the southwest district and so on and so forth. So it's not quite the east west format that we see in 6A, 5A, and 4A, but it's certainly going to be able to spread the. The, the, the toughness of the districts around a little bit. Well, that, that that's, again, is a step in the right direction. Not, not what I would like to see. I don't know why there was res, such resistance to doing what we're doing at 
and been doing successfully at four, five, and six A, but they they seem not to want to make that big step. Why, why do you think that is? Why why can't we just see this? Well, from what little I can gather, I, I have had some discussions about this. Of why don't why don't they do this? You know, like four, five, and six A. And the the thought is is that some some districts, like in three A or two A, they know that they're weak. They know that their teams traditionally make the playoffs and maybe win one game, and they just can't compete with the stronger districts. So in 3A, you know, I don't want to put a, uh, an actual uh, number on the district, but, you know, they're, they're just not as good as maybe a Silver Lake, and they, they're probably never going to beat a team like Silver Lake. So they think that if we, don't, if we go with the East-West format, then we're never going to compete because – you know, our, our records aren't going to be as good and we're not going to be seated very high. This way, our, our weaker teams will still have a chance to win districts, et cetera. So this was kind of the compromise. Get rid of the districts as we currently know them, but not go with the traditional East-West format. Mm. I get, still not the answer I wanted, but I guess <laughs> I can I live with. And hopefully, the, eventually, we will we will get there. It's a, I think it's a good step, anything that's going to make it a um, – a better postseason and more balanced is what I'm in favor of. Uh, basketball changing a little bit as well. Um, again, kind of break this down. Way I understand that um, it's going to be quadrants as well. Is how how similar will it be to football as far as the quadrants? Well, the difference in football and basketball is that in basketball you have 64 teams. And in football, you have 48 and 3A and 2A. So what you're going to see is you're going to see the quadrants with 16 teams. So so you'll, you'll, you'll have your 16 teams, like uh, let's, again, let's just say the Southwest District. So you want eight teams at the state tournament. So every sub-state, Southwest, Northwest, et cetera, will have two sub-states mixed in the one big sub-state. So you'll, you'll have you know, the 16 teams and you'll have eight sub-states or two, two 18 sub-states within that district. And then you just, you know, play it out one through one play 16, eight plays nine, et cetera. And then, you know, essentially the top two teams will be separated. You know, the, the top seed will be the number one seed overall. The number two seed will be the two overall, but the two and the one won't play each other because they'll be in different sub-states. So you're, so once again, you're, you're, you're kind of alleviating the problem that you have where you have loaded substates like what we saw with Cheney that, or a Nickerson substate with Cheney and Heston and all of them were over there this year. So it, it alleviates a, it a little bit, but I will be interested to see maybe if one of those quadrants will be much stronger than another one. Well, it's, it's highly possible. I know there's no perfect system, but again, I think we're getting, getting a little closer. I guess I wanted to jump back on football and now is that going to go into eight man as well i don't believe i think the only classifications these new quadrants will go into effect for to the best of my knowledge will be just 3a and 2a uh 1a is just not big enough to to, they they already have quadrants essentially because they only have four districts but uh to the best of my knowledge i don't believe eight man is changing Okay, and obviously six man is would be in the same boat. Would not have enough teams to um, in their inaugural um, official season coming up. So, and and it also, I believe you said this uh, trickled into volleyball as well. Correct, correct. So volleyball and basketball will essentially mirror each other. You might have exceptions where maybe one school has 
volleyball and they don't they don't have enough for basketball so they have the co-op or something like that so there may be some minute differences but overall yes uh, volleyball and basketball will probably mirror each other all right and staying with some of the changes Keisha there was a couple of there were several rule changes some of them were very minor to football a couple of them I wanted to talk about is they changed the rules on intentional grounding and on the chop block. Um, as we know, you know, you and I, I call a ton of college football and watch a lot of NFL football. When we see uh, the quarterback, they talk about the tackle box. If the quarterback gets outside of that tackle box, as long as the ball gets back to the line of scrimmage, there's no intentional grounding. There could, there, the nearest receiver could be 50 yards away and it doesn't matter. That's not ever been the case in high school football. You had to get it close to uh, an eligible receiver or it was intentional grounding. In the way I'm reading the rule, this is pretty much going to mirror what we see at college and pro. The tackle box, if the quarterback scrambles outside of that area, and gets the ball back at least to the line of scrimmage, there does not have to be a receiver out there, and it would simply be an incomplete pass. Do you, do you like that change for high school? Oh, absolutely. It's a safety issue, especially with more high schools taking on more pro-style offenses and throwing the ball all over the place. It's a safety issue for me, Scott. That quarterback that's outside the pocket, give him the ability just to chuck the ball away and, and essentially protect himself instead of, desperately looking for someone they can throw the the ball in the vicinity of so I, I for me scott it's a safety issue and this this is the right decision i i like it um, i think it's it's time we we see so much um spread offense in high school now that the, the high school game is beginning to mimic i know we still have the, your some of your traditional power type teams that just line up and smash mouth but we see so much that's mirroring college. I, I like the change. And I wanted to look at the chop block a little bit again. This is definitely um, a safety issue. And, and basically a chop block has always been when uh, an offensive player, or this can even be a defensive player as well, is when an offensive and defensive player are engaged in a block against one another that another player cannot come in and hit the player engaged below the waist. Uh, and now it used to be uh, they used the knee area to determine how, um, if it was a chop block, if you were at the knees or below, and now they are changing that definition to where if you, if that blocker is engaged and you hit him anywhere below the waist, it is then a penalty. Do you, do you like the clarify? I guess it's basically a better clarification of the rule. Do you like the way it's going to read now? Yeah. And once again, I think it's a, a safety issue. And I think that this, I, I think that these rules and all that should mirror from pro down to high school. And I know you're going to see some minute differences as, as there should be, but I think overall the, the, football rules should be or and rules across any sport should try to be as as uniform as possible and it's not just for the the players benefit when they move up level i would also say it benefits the officials if they don't have to constantly go back and forth between different sets of rules yeah i mean 
I guess until I saw this, I did not know that they used the knee in high school baseball to determine that. I thought it was just below the waist. So I, I think, again, it was more of a clarification, but um, you and I in agreement. I think these are two um, very good changes, and I'm looking forward to those uh, being implemented uh, this fall for high school football. Uh, bounce around just a little bit on a couple other um, topics here. The USFL rebooted this weekend. Um, first, did you get to watch any of the games? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I spent the Saturday just kind of uh, I refereed a couple soccer games, and then I would kind of went home and you know kind of chilled with the family a little bit this weekend. My son had a game as well, so no, I didn't really get a chance. Um, you know, I, I saw some, I caught some highlight clips, and that's fine. Uh, you know, I'll probably watch a game at some point just to kind of see what the quality is. Uh, did you get a chance? I, I watched a little bit. Um, I think there was three games again. The there was three games back to back to back on Sunday because you know, the 18 league they're playing every game in Birmingham, which right. I understand. I think I understand the reason with the reboot in the first year and still some COVID restrictions in certain areas where these games could be played, why they're doing it. I think it's really hard to initially reestablish a fan base when you don't ever have a home game. Mm-hmm. technically um what i saw from saturday night was just highlights i saw a little bit off and on action yesterday great crowd because birmingham was involved in the game on saturday night boy brad there wasn't hardly anybody there sunday um there was a rain issue where they had to halt one of the games due to lightning which did not help um that's what i'm afraid of for them playing all these games in the same place without a home fan base. I'm just afraid financially, if you're relying on some gate ticket sales, you're going to really struggle. Yeah. And it's, I, I, I really still think there's a market for a spring league. I hope they don't pull the plug on it. If it, if it goes South and, and I hope that the expectations weren't too high. I do think that there's an opportunity for spring football, a spring professional league to make it in this country I think the appetite for football is it's never going to get weaker. It's only going to get stronger. We've seen the USFL before succeed a little bit. Uh, they, they won't be able to compete with the NFL like they tried in the 80s. But I do think that uh, with a little bit of patience and a little bit of planning, I think that this could still work out. I think it can, too. And from what I saw, it was it's a, it's a good product. They have good players. They, have, they, they, of course, show the profiles of a – a lot of the players where they were drafted uh, initially um, in the NFL and, and for whatever reason weren't able to, to stay on with a team. And that's, of course, their goal is to get recognized again. And you know the sca- – anytime a league like this pops up, the NFL's watching. They're always looking for additional players that they can add. So I, I, I do uh, – again, my one – that one concern, playing everything and. The same location. I, I, I hope that that's just a one-year deal on that, and then they can get back into these home markets because I think that's the way um, you, you're you going to have to establish your home crowd to make this work. And I, I think that's that's the one thing I hope that they can move away from and get back to next season. Yeah, because you can't really grow the game unless you have fans. And if you don't have fans, you know, what do you have? So uh, the only way to sustain this is by – 
playing in the home markets of these teams and building a fan base. So that was the USFL this weekend. Again, they'll be playing um, every weekend into the late spring, early summer. Uh, Brad, I've been doing the uh, Wichita Wizards professional basketball team in Wichita doing the play-by-play for their home games this year. They're off to a 3-0 and start. Um, a very entertaining team with some local kids. Um, Central Christian, there's a couple of friends players some, some that played at local JUCOs. It's been a really fun team. Again, they're 3-0. and They beat uh, the Oklahoma City Servants. Uh, it was a week ago Saturday. Uh, one fifteen to ninety nine. Uh, only one loss in their three seasons so far as a franchise. They're going to be on the road um, this weekend in Oklahoma for their first road game. But hey, it's been a lot of fun. They mirror. They play just like an NBA game. The rules with the six fouls, the twenty four second shot clock, um, illegal def. You can have the three seconds on the defense and those kind of rules. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's a good brand. It is quality basketball. Um, so I hope we'll continue to grow the fan base. But it's been a lot of fun to, to watch them off to a great start. And um, great owner, great coach. Terry Stuckey used to do games for Ad Astra Radio, so I knew him already. Um, Caitlin, or Caitlin Gary from Central Christian, their best player. To, he's the defending um, league MVP. He's been our player of the game two of the three games. Uh, really Really nice young man. It's been it's been a lot of fun so far. I'm looking forward to see if they can um, run through the regular season and get back to the playoffs again. Well, I think that these uh, I think that minor league basketball is uh, I, I like the USFL. I think if done right, that there's a market for it. We've seen it before with the USBL and teams like the Kansas Cagers and the um, the Dodge City Legend, and I think the team in Enid, Oklahoma, is pretty popular too. So yeah, I, 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 it's good to see it starting out well in Wichita. I think they found themselves a little niche down there at Friends University. And uh, I, I, I really hope it maintains not not just the team, but the league as well. Because I think that, you know, minor league basketball, uh, I think it could be like baseball where you have different tiers and I think uh, different levels. And I think that it would be something really cool to see it sustain. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a fun, it's a fun product. These are some good guys and the Wizards, they've done it right. I mean, they have a deep team. I mean, coach Ducky, he plays and he's worn out their first three opponents. Um, for whatever reasons, their opponents have just had maybe seven, eight players that have traveled so far and he plays 11, sometimes 12 and he, he gets them worn down. They play, they surprisingly enough, you know, you don't talk about defense a lot with NBA like leagues. They do play some defense um, they've got some good bigs. They can shoot. They can shoot the three, and we see a lot of threes go up in these type of games. And, and they're doing a nice job. And their next home games are going to be uh, May fifteenth. That's a Sunday afternoon at two, and then May twenty first, a Saturday evening at six. They're going to play back to back road game on the fourteenth, and then home on the fifteenth. So that will be interesting to see how they turn around, and that's where we'll really see their depth pay off. Well, you know as well as I do that depth, uh, especially for some of some of these uh, leagues like this, uh, you can't put a you can't put a, a value on it. It's just so important to have the kind of depth for these teams, especially when you play that many games in a short amount of time. So again, the Wizards back at home on the fifteenth. They do play all their home games at Friends University. 
Uh, well, that was our regular topics for this week, so we can move on to your final thoughts. Well, Scott, it was uh, a week ago. We're recording this on Monday, like you said. It was a week ago today that we finished up with me and my students at our annual Kansas Collegiate Media Conference in Wichita. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in the journalism industry and still and still do, you know, with that Astro Radio and, and doing some freelance work. And there's nothing there, there's not much better, Scott, than piecing together a good written story or having a great call on a broadcast. It's just a great feeling, you know. But I'll tell you what, man, there is nothing like seeing your students succeed. And uh, we won something like over, I'd have to go back and look, over 40 individual awards. And you know that sports writing has always been a big part for me. So I always take great pride when my students do well in sports. And I've got a kid who graduated in December named Joel Moose, who is now the sports editor, incredibly, at the McPherson Sentinel. So he graduates from JUCO, and he's got himself a full-time job a couple months later in his hometown. I mean, this would be like me right for Allen County getting a job at the Kansas City Star. I mean, uh, but what Joel did, uh, he took first, second, and third in sports news writing. Oh, and no. to, to see the work that he did, you know, his, his story on the death of Mike Kenny, a Juco assistant golf coach, got first. And just the way he relayed the story, I mean, it, it fills me with so much pride to see these kids doing the work that they did. Uh, I had another student uh, get first in sports features, uh, Ben Short, who had never seen a soccer game, I think, in his life. Goes out to a Hutch Juco soccer game, writes about Sammy Lane a little bit, and boom, he gets first place for his great uh, depiction of that story. Um, My my editor-in-chief, Brooke Green, who has gone through a lot of stuff in these last couple of years, and uh, she was named Journalist of the Year uh, for two-year colleges. And, man, it was such a great feeling, and it it, it gives me hope for the future (laughs) of not just journalists in this country, but also sports journalists in this country. I mean, to, you know, we get so in, enamored with the hot takes, Scott, Stephen, a, or I'm sorry, Screaming A. Smith and Skip Bayless and, and, and uh, you know, people like that in shows like that. Give me a good written story, you know, out there. Let, let's see what they can do. And that's what really kind of bones me about people like Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless is they used to be that kind of writer. And yeah. seeing, what the, seeing what guys like, uh, you know, Joel – and uh, Ben and then Aubrey Heck also seeing what these sports kids uh, uh, that I've had in class do. Boy, I tell you what, there's a lot of talent out there. And I really hope that some of them, I know not all of them will, but some of them get into sports journalism because I, th- I tell you, they've got a bright futures ahead. Well, it's great to hear that from, from kids coming up now. And I hope, and no one in today's social media probably won't, um, I hope we move back in that direction instead of always gravitating towards, as you say, the screaming a Smith's and the, the skip Bayless's and the Max Kellerman's that are just, I don't want to say they aren't still good journalists because they are, but so much is now just, I don't even know how to describe what they do now. It's just kind of this, they've got to draw attention by going over the top all the time. And that's just, you go you get lost in telling what you need to be telling when you do that. And I, I hope we get back to what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Hey, make your money, do, do, do whatever you can to make your money. That's great. But uh, I, I still think that there is a strong market out there for great storytelling. And I really hope that some of these uh, students of mine get that opportunity. Like I said, Joel now being the sports editor at the McPherson Sentinel, um, 
boy, uh, he, he's so fortunate to be in that position, and he is going to do some great things up there. Well, I wanted to go back, and this goes back into uh, Major League Baseball for a little bit. Um, I think probably a lot of people saw this story. Maybe a lot of people didn't. That uh, young lady by the name of Alyssa Nacken, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, she is a coach, assistant coach with the uh, San Francisco Giants, um, made history about a week ago by becoming the first ever female on the field coach. She became the first base coach uh, due to an ejection of their um, base coach. It was in a game they were playing uh, against the Padres. So it, um, it raised a lot of eyebrows that um, she was able to do that. And the interesting part of this, Brad, you think you would hear a mostly all positive comments. I've seen a lot of negative um, comments, uh, publicity stunt, blah, blah, blah. Um, what did you think when this happened initially? Well, I, I mean, it good for her. I mean, yeah. if, you know, if she is, um, if she knows the game and, and I, I'm sure she does uh, just like that, uh, the, oh gosh, the Heston, uh, lady who coached with the 49ers, uh, her name escapes me right now. Help me out, Scott. Oh, you would put me on the spot there. <laughs> Oh, I, I, I can see her face right now. So, um, but anyway, uh, if, if she knows the game and, uh, which obviously she does, I don't see any reason why, you know, she can't be out there just as you see men coaching, you know, women's softball. There's no reason that we can't see women out there coaching men's baseball. I mean, I think we talk about, um, making progress in professional sports and I, I don't want to call women a minority, but it in obviously in professional baseball, they are. And I think this is a great thing. Obviously, she's qualified. She started out as like, a, I believe it was a, um, an intern in the, the front office and now has moved on to the field. Um, Eric Hosmer, um, of course, we all know him from the Royals days. He, he congratulated her with a handshake when she came out to take over at first base. I, I think it's a great thing. I think that we should be um, – moving forward in these directions because there are qualified more than qualified um, women in men's sports. We've seen it with um, uh, Becky Hammonds, you know, the, the bench coach with uh, Popovich, um, with the, um, San Antonio Spurs in the NBA, uh, more than qualified to be a coach. And I think maybe someday going to be a head coach in the NBA. Uh, so I think that this, I think I, I don't see any downside and I, I wanted to really get on the people who were, were, were throwing this around as more than just the publicity stunt. Cause it certainly from everything that I've seen, what was a, was a great move and is, is a great move forward in for women in baseball. Well, I don't watch a lot of Sunday night baseball, but what I have seen with Jessica Mendoza, she yeah. is extraordinarily knowledgeable. I mean, she is something else. And uh, last week I was list I was watching, um, a European uh, Champions League game between Liverpool and uh, Benfica, and they had an all-female crew doing the play-by-play in color. And I just remember thinking at one point, these two are really knowledgeable. I mean, they're really, really good. I'd love to hear them on future telecasts. And, you know, I do hope we get to the point where and, – and, look, broadcasting isn't – you know, there, there, there's some intangibles in there, but I really hope that we get to the point where it doesn't really matter – you know, if we're okay with men calling women's games, then we should be more than okay with women calling men's games, working in men's sports, et cetera. Yeah. 
hopefully it just gets to the point that um, when you talk about, you just talk about that they're the announcers or they're the coaches. We're not putting, they're the, uh, they're a female coach or they're a minority coach or whatever it might be that they're, they're just a coach um, for whatever sport we were talking about. And I hope that uh, I think this is a step forward and I think maybe eventually um, we can get there one day. Well, the, schedule this week for ad astra is up at ad radio.com i have haven at nickerson on tuesday and i will have cedric at canton galva on friday bueller will play again as you mentioned against circle on thursday so again uh, that's at ad radio.com and the sports page and we want you to join us for our edition of view from the press box next week but for this week for brad hallier This is Scott Hogan. God bless. Have a great week.